Well, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking together at grace, what I would call the engine of salvation. Specifically, looking at the doctrine of sola gratia, or sola grace, grace alone, grace by itself. And just as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, let me just give you a little insight on what we're doing today, for the, actually for the next few weeks in this passage, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is, this is one of those wonderful passages that contain both theological insight and theological invitation. And what I mean by that is if you've been a Christian for many months, many years, many decades, this passage ought to warm your heart and generate genuine fresh worship. But if you're new to the things of God, if you are unsure of your standing with God, if you're unsure of what it means to be a Christian, these are words of invitation. This is in one sense one of those John 3.16 verses in the New Testament. It's that profound, it's that famous. We'll be isolating our attention today in verses well, 8 through 10, mostly just verse 8 today, but in the next few weeks, verses 8 through 10. But in order to get to verses 8 to 10, you've got to know what comes in the first seven verses. So let me again read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, And you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Well, exaggeration and overstatement are a constant temptation to every believer. And and they're a constant temptation theologically for a good reason. They're also a particular temptation for preachers and for theologians. The temptation to be hyperbolic and strong-worded when we talk about God and the realities of our salvation, that should come as no surprise because of the nature 
of discussing and describing God and theological truth. They are ultimate realities and demand ultimate superlatives. The best, the most, the greatest. Consequently, I would understand and be very sympathetic if you may have suspicion when I make the following suggestion. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 might be the most succinct and clearest summation of the gospel in the entire Bible. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 might be the clearest, most succinct summation of the gospel in the whole Bible. Now, don't just take my word for it. Kent Hughes says this of this verse, these verses, quote, this is the gospel in a nutshell. The most cogent summary of the dynamics of salvation to be found in Scripture, end quote. Those are two pretty bold and audacious statements, but I would stand behind them. I don't know that you can find three verses more power-packed and loaded to explain the wonder of salvation, the invitation to salvation, the amazement of salvation than these verses before us. Hear them again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, full disclosure, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through these three verses, and I think we are going to have a blast spiritually working through them. To understand the significance of these verses, we're going to have to do a little bit of church history, and that'll set our our course in our uh, study of these wonderful words. If you were to invent, think about this, if you and I were to sit in a boardroom, sit with a whiteboard, and invent a scheme, a story, a way by which men would merit eternal heaven, how they would go to heaven and be with God, what kind of religion would you naturally develop? You would, no doubt, do what every other religion, religion and its leaders have done. You would probably concoct what the Romans did in their mythologies and the Greeks did in their mythologies. You would join the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Sikhs in what they did. You would certainly be tempted to do what the mystery religions like the Gnostics and the mystics did as well. And that is make up something where people get good enough to go to heaven. And you would certainly be on the exact same trajectory as what Roman Catholicism did in its beginning. Roman Catholicism is really no different than the ancient mysteries religion of Gnosticism or mysticism or Greek or Roman mythology. The reality is that every other religion besides biblical Christianity is fundamentally the same. All of them are the same. And that's this. They all depend on a person's personal moral achievement to gain or merit favor with the divine in order to earn salvation. You've heard us say it many times before. There's only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement 
what man can do to impress God and go to heaven, or the religion of divine accomplishment, what God has already done in his son in the gospel. Every religion in the world falls into one of those two religions. Moral achievement, human achievement, or divine accomplishment. Doing better, trying harder, being good, or at least better than others, is what most people do to try to earn their way to heaven. But Christianity distinguishes itself from every other religion by its claim that, get this, you cannot get to heaven by yourself. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be impressive enough. You'll never be better than others enough to merit God's approval. Biblical Christianity is different. It says that different than every other religion, man cannot and would not achieve merit and good standing of God because of our hopeless sinfulness. Where do we get such an idea? Look up the page at verse 1 of this passage. You were dead, spiritually dead, how? In your trespasses and sins. That's universal. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, dominated by an earthly worldview, according to the prince of the power of the air, dominated by a satanic agenda. And the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It comes from outside us and it comes from inside us. Our moral decay, our rebellion against God, our biblical repugnance that God has toward us because of our sin. But... In the passage that begins in verse 4 and climaxes in verse 10, an unspeakable kindness comes into our reality. God, understanding our horrific state, invades that problem and solves it. He knew that we had no merit, no good works, no good standing for him to look at to receive us. So he provided that for us in his son, the Lord Jesus. God has revealed his standard and his expectations in his holy word. The Bible, the Old Testament, contains God's law that he gave to Israel, knowing his moral standards demanded perfection and that no one would ever gain them. And these moral standards are legal in heaven's court because God is holy. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Universally, all have sinned. Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, not even one. Now back to our history lesson for a moment. At the time of the Reformation, 15 and 1600s, the Roman Catholic Church erroneously taught and still teaches to this day that Man's righteousness can be mixed in with God's in order to achieve our standing with God. Here's what's, what's so dangerous. Roman Catholicism taught and teaches this, that Scripture is authoritative. Sounds good, doesn't it? 
That salvation comes through faith. Sounds good, doesn't it? That we are saved by grace. That sounds good, doesn't it? Roman Roman Catholicism teaches that Jesus is Lord and that life should be aimed at the glory of God. All of that sounds wonderful and like they are cousins or at least siblings to us spiritually. Here's the problem though. We've talked about this many times. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that but it also adds things to that. The problem is these convictions were accompanied and are still accompanied by the word and. Let me explain. Roman Catholicism, this is what launched the Reformation, teaches and taught that Scripture is authoritative and so are the church councils and the Pope and the Apocrypha and the church fathers. So it's Scripture plus. Roman Catholicism taught and teaches that salvation comes through faith and through works and effort of our own. Those have to go together. Roman Catholicism taught and teaches that we are saved by grace and by the merit of our own generated by good deeds and we can transfer that to those who have even died if we're good enough. Roman Catholicism teaches that Jesus is Lord and that Mary is also a co-redeemer and the Pope is infallible. And Roman Catholicism taught and teaches that life should be aimed at the glory of God and living well enough to get friends and relatives out of purgatory and staying in good enough relationship with the church that your good works matter. In light of that, what was being taught during the time of Martin Luther especially, a group of people called the Reformers who wanted to reform how theology was thought about biblically rather than according to the church, tried to recapture these tenets and distinguish what's biblical from what's added from human earthly minds And they did so by inserting a word into a series of statements. And the word is the word alone. This translated into what would be called their manifesto, their battle cry for the reformers of the Protestant Reformation. These convictions were all defined by the critical word alone. And we get what we call the five sola, which is Latin for alone. Five solas of the Reformation. The reformers were compelled by the conviction that the church of their day had drifted from the essential original teachings of Christianity in the scripture and especially in regard to what it was teaching about salvation, which is the most important thing it could teach. In other words, how can people be forgiven of sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life with God? And what does the Bible say about that? The reformation sought to reorient Christianity on the original message of Jesus and the early church. So these five solas, these five alone statements or slogans that emerged during the Reformation to summarize the Reformers' theological convictions were really to capture the essence of Christianity. Let me remind you of those. We've talked about them many times. There were five of them. First, sola scriptura, or what alone? What alone? Scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Alone, not plus the Pope, not plus the councils, not plus 
anyone's teaching the Bible alone. Then there was sola fide, which means what alone? Faith alone. Good. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Then there was sola gratia, which we're going to study beginning today, which is we are saved by the grace of God alone. Solus Christus. You've got to change the Latin there. Solus Christus which means Christ alone, that he alone is Savior and King. There's no other means to salvation except through him. And then soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. He is the ultimate, not any pope, not any church father. Why are these so important? Well, what you believe about each one of those statements, friends, actually defines your eternal destination. Here's the problem. Way too many so-called Christians, let's just say that for a moment, way too many evangelicals have put too much confidence in human ability as a way to be saved, a way to be regenerated, a way to have spiritual life. The doctrine of total depravity, which we've studied many times, has become for many a bygone relic of pre-enlightenment man. No one's really totally depraved, they would say. And yet, what we're going to study in the passage before us, sola gratia, grace alone, recognizes this as a fact based on Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and shows God as the only problem solver here. God owes mankind nothing but punishment for our sin. And yet, He saves some in spite of our sin because it pleases him to do so. There's a general sentiment that man is basically good these days. Oh, he's a good guy. He's not as bad as others and he'll make it somehow. God will wink and let him into heaven. Basically this idea that man is basically good and God owes everyone an opportunity to be saved. But nothing could be farther from the truth. If we really believe that man is dead in trespasses and sins, then we must conclude that only God's gracious regeneration can waken the soul in faith. And as with the solas, the modifying word is sola, alone. Only God, God alone can solve the spiritual problem that we all are born with. Again, we, we come back to material that we've covered many times before. The two most dangerous words to your understanding of biblical doctrine is the word and and the word but. Oh, I know the Bible says that and the Pope and the Book of Mormon and you name it. But there's also looking at a verse of Scripture, a passage of Scripture and, say, and saying, I know the Bible says that, but there's another way of thinking about it and not letting God say what he's clearly said. Let me give you some examples. Someone who would say, well, I believe the scriptures are inspired, but not all of the Bible is God's word. You ever heard that? I believe the Bible is God's word, and so are the voices I hear. You ever heard that? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, but there are other ways to heaven as well. Some would say, I believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior, and he cares so much about everyone that he would never send anyone to hell forever. Ever heard that? Someone might say, I believe that salvation is by the grace of God, but if a person is good enough and their heart is leaning in the right direction, God would never let them go to hell. He'd let them into heaven. 
Or they might say, I believe God's grace saves and man will always choose God if given enough evidence. Another faulty way of thinking. I believe that salvation is through faith, but I have to contribute my own effort to be saved. Yes, salvation is acquired through faith and works and church attendance and giving and on and on. Or this. I believe that God should receive credit for salvation but he surely wants to honor those wise enough to choose him. I want to be glorified, and I want some credit for being in partnership, cooperation with God. Those are terrible, terrible ways of saying yes, but, and also including an and in our theology. I know the scripture says, and something else, or I know the scripture says, but this is what I think. Instead, the reformers stood on Scripture alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and for God's glory alone. But if you begin dialing down into those five solas, I think the engine that runs them all, the engine that turns on our salvation, the engine that generates our belief, that sustains our belief, the heart of salvation is grace in our nomenclature with the five solas sola gratia grace as we've studied many times before is God's unearned you can't do anything to get it unmerited you can't do anything to deserve it favor and kindness for people who don't deserve it and in Ephesians 2 8 and 9 Paul explains what he calls the in verse 7 the surpassing wealth of his grace that he showed in kindness toward us. Surpassing value, wealth of grace that God showed toward us in salvation in verse 7. Paul is genuinely amazed by grace. He holds up grace like a diamond. And he moves it for us to show us the different facets and its spectacular glories. So in these next two verses, he's going to take us into a deep dive into the doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone. Full disclosure, I want to show you four facets of the doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone, and I think we're only going to get through two of them today. I hope we get that far. This, This is just a feast of theology. Four facets of the doctrine of sola gratia, splendorous facets. First of all, it's dependent on grace. It shows a dependence on this attribute of God, of grace. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Paul has been extolling the grace of God in the first chapter and a half of Ephesians. He cannot stop talking about grace. He is overwhelmed. He is truly amazed by grace. Look back at chapter 1 for a moment in verse 3. Listen to it with the ears and the filter of grace on full volume. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.3 who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention or intentionality of his will. Why? Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely meted out, he freely bestowed on us in Jesus, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, listen to this again, according to the riches of his grace, which he lathered, lavished on us. When he's talking about what God did by raising the dead spiritually, we talked about this a couple of studies ago. In Ephesians 2, 5, he says, when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together, and he can't even keep talking without saying, for by grace you have been saved. Salvation was accomplished because God gave us something we didn't deserve and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing wealth or riches or treasure of his what? Grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul makes a synonym out of his grace giving us something we don't deserve and his kindness, God being kind to those who were unkind, God loving those who were unlovable. And again, we rightly say that grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor and kindness. But, however, I want to go one step beyond that. Dr. S.M. Baugh provides a corrective and a clarifying thought to us saying that grace is merely God's unmerited, undeserved favor. It's more than that. Listen to what he says. This is worth a listen. He says, quote, It is typical to hear divine grace defined as God's undeserved favor. We just said that, and we all believe that. But this does not capture the idea communicated here in Ephesians 2 or in other places in Paul. As this whole passage shows, God's grace, which is emphasized by here by putting it first in the colon, you know, in verse 8, is actually God's favor granted, listen, to those who deserve his wrath. That's according to verse 3, we're children of wrath. It's not just undeserved, as if the people whom God befriends were neutral, it is an act of immense favor bestowed on those who lie under God's just condemnation as transgressors and sinners. Hence, a better quick definition is this, quote, God's favor despite human demerit, end quote. I think he's right. It's not enough for us to think, oh, God gave us what we should, didn't deserve. He gave the undeserving what we didn't deserve because we deserved worse. We deserved wrath. Ah, think with me again of the sweet words we love to sing of amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
that what? Saved a, a what? A wretch like me? You understand what Newton was communicating that is exactly what Baugh just said. It saved a wretch like me. An undeserving wretch. Listen to the Baptist Confession of 1689. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself in his blood on the cross undergoing in their stead the penalty due them to make a proper, real, full satisfaction of God's justice or wrath on their behalf. Their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners, end quote. The Baptist Confession is saying what Paul said in much simpler terms. It's by grace that we're saved. We didn't deserve to be saved. We deserve to go to hell. Now, what I find very interesting, I'd like you to turn over to Acts chapter 15 for a moment. Acts 15. Because the first official council of the church, we call the Jerusalem Council, is in Acts 15. And it, it, uh, the, it's really the, what we call the problem of the Old Testament. What we do, what do we do, the early church leaders are saying, what do we do with circumcision and, and, and all the the Old Testament expectations and the dietary laws. What do we do with thinking about salvation from an Old Testament perspective with Gentiles, non-Jews, who are now being converted? What do we do? So they have this council in Acts 15. But listen to the concluding theological accent. It's worth reading the whole account. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hear what they're doing? They understood Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and Christianity as the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. So the way to make Gentiles full Christians was to make them full Jews. See where they were going? Well, Verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Who's right? Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. This is amazing. God is extending his, his grace and mercy even to non-Jews. When they arrived at Jerusalem, verse 4, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. In other words, to be a good Christian, you must be a good Jew. Hear it again? The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. They're going to have a pretty good Bible study. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, 
you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's Acts chapter 10. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us also. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Remember that, okay? Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is an interesting statement because he's the yoke. That's a... Uh, a, a beam that would go across two uh, cattle by the, by behind which you would pull a plow. It was a burden. Why do you put that burden on? And he, he tells them, oh, wait a minute. You guys are thinking if you just get them circumcised and they obey the law enough that they'll be saved? That was too much for us to bear. We didn't do it either. But, verse 11, we believe that we, the Jews, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Really important. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That's, verse 12 is a nice way of saying Paul and Barnabas won the debate. There was no questioning them after that. But what's critical is in verse 11 because Paul says, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. We're going to get to that in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Jew and Gentile are both saved the same way by God demonstrating his grace. His grace. It's interesting actually how he says it here. This is, this is for another study another time. We believe that we are saved the same as they are. Not they're the saved the same way as we are. Do you see the difference there? He didn't say, well, they should be saved the same way the Jews are saying. He says, we as Jews are saved the same way that God is saving the Gentiles, and that way is grace. Incredible. Let me tell you some good news. You cannot do enough or anything to earn God's kind favor or standing with him to go to heaven. You say, why is that good news? Because someone's already done it for you. (laughs) Jesus, his son, did it for us, which takes us to our second facet of the doctrine of sola gratia. It's dependent on grace. Secondly, it's accessed. We get it through faith, through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's look first of all at what it means to be saved. Saved from what? You know, we hear this this, uh, nomenclature. It's good. It's biblical termination. Biblical nomenclature to be saved. But people usually don't stop to say saved from what? Now, the Bible gives us several answers to that. First of all, we're saved from sin. Romans 6 tells us we're saved from sin and its effects. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, especially 2 and 3, tells us we're saved from Satan. Chapter 6, we'll find out more about being saved from Satan. He has no power over us. Hebrews chapter 2, he wields over us the power of of the fear of death. 
And when we're saved, we are freed from that. So we're saved from Satan and his powers. We're saved from hell. We're saved from eternity apart from God and in torturous punishment. We're also saved, according to verse 2 and 3, from ourself. We're saved from what we would do in pursuing our own sin. All of that's true. But don't miss this. We're also saved from God. Look for a moment back up to verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That means we're, we're children of a father or something we'll inherit from called wrath. Whose wrath? It's the wrath of God. So for by grace, you've been saved through faith. You can literally say, by God's grace, we are saved from God's wrath through faith. God saves us from himself. And the means of our accessing this salvation, the way that we can get it, is articulated here through faith, through, through belief. Now, please don't make a mistake here because I, I know what, this is the debate in, in, a, in a lot of theolo- theological circles is that, wait a minute, if grace means we don't do anything to earn it and faith is believing that isn't believing doing something to earn it. Hear the circle there? Isn't faith a work? Isn't faith a good deed that we're doing? The answer is no, no, no. There's an old song I love by West King. I believe, he says, because God made me believe. I know the song. I've been to the camp house. I have decided to follow Jesus. I know it by heart. We sing it sometimes, but it needs a qualifier. I have decided to follow Jesus is only the case because God decided for me to decide to follow Jesus. Faith is not produced by our own unregenerated human nature. Our sinful nature would never generate faith. Romans 3.28 says this, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works, even the work of believing. The great debate, though, in church history is, then what part does works play what do I do I mean is it totally let is is it that passive phrase let go and let God no 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 it's not Uh, in James chapter 2 verse 14 I won't take the time to read all of it now but in James 2 14 they often put James and Paul against one another by grace you've been saved through faith but James says faith without works is dead how does that work out? Think of it like this. Paul and James are standing back to back fighting two different attacks on the gospel, two different enemies. Paul is here fighting those who would say that you can do enough to earn salvation. No, it's all God. James is fighting those who say, oh, it's all of grace. Doesn't matter how you live. You can live any way you want to. 
By the way, James also talks about the need for faith and grace, and Paul also talks about the need for works. Look at verse 10 of this chapter. They're both hand in glove, fighting different opponents. We have to be careful not to fall off on either side of the ditch on the road. The, the one ditch is thinking that I can contribute enough for God to be impressed. That's wrong. The other ditch is that God is so impressed because of his grace, I never have to obey or do anything. Those are wrong. Threading the needle is right here in these three verses. Look at verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We'll talk about that here in the coming weeks. The Bible is not contradicting itself. James is talking about something quite different than Paul. They're answering two different questions. But back here, faith. This, when we, when we studied Romans, I, I don't want to be too cheesy or hokey with you. But several years ago, we spent some time, in, we spent five years in Romans. And I, def, I remember where I was. Embarrassingly enough, it was at a coffee shop down south studying in Romans chapter 5 and 6 the doctrine of sola fide, that we are saved by believing what God has done and only by believing, not by doing, by believing that it was done by someone else. And I remember actually stopping and saying, that just can't be right. It can't be that simple. And yet it is. Our faith is what saves us. Faith in what he has done. We're justified by his blood. His blood, Romans 5, 9. We are made saved by the gift of grace, Romans 3, 24. That comes through faith, Romans 3, 28. Christians receive Jesus and put their faith in him in John 1, 12. Those who are made right with God, justified, saved, and their salvation is secured, are done so, or, or excuse me, experience that as a free gift of God's grace, not something we earn. But we experience that gift by receiving it by faith, by believing. Do you believe, <laughs> pun intended, do you believe that belief is what saves you? That's what distinguishes you from a Roman Catholic. That's what distinguishes you from every other religion in the world. We don't believe in what we could do, even believing. We believe that it, everything that needed to be done was accomplished through Christ, through his son. Listen to this quick tour. You can write these down. I'll, I'll put them on the website for you. Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God through faith we believe in, in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there's no distinction. We receive the gospel through faith. Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And remember, Romans 4 is saying, it's the same as what Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and God said, because you believe me, I'm going to declare you as righteous. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, by believing, we have peace with God. 
Galatians 2.16, nevertheless knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.11, no one is justified by the law before God. By the law before God, is evident, it is evident the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, made right before God by faith. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Philippians 3.9, that we may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, how much I can obey, but that which is through faith in Christ. But there's a, really an all-important verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Listen carefully, because it's easy to just kind of skate over. Philippians 1, 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. We usually look at suffering as appointed by God, and we're right. <coughs> but don't miss the fact that Paul is saying to believe in him has been granted to you by God, Philippians 1.29. We contribute nothing to our salvation. Even believing, even having faith is a divine gift. So let's go back to our big discussion about election. I mean, everybody, when we talk about being predestined, we talk about election, people get really nervous and say, well, I just want to make sure I was elect. What if I wasn't elect? It's a simple answer. Will you believe? Do you believe? If you will believe, you were chosen. Only the elect and the predestined will believe because it's through faith. By the way, the word faith will occur seven more times in Ephesians, and we'll look at that when we get there. I like what Walter Layfield writes. Faith helps us keep our awe of God and our appreciation that we now have the right to come to him because of his son. Let me do it, make it as simple as possible. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve as the undeserved. Faith is believing, but believing what? Paul makes it so abundantly clear in Colossians chapter two, the parallel book to Ephesians. We've been buried with him in baptism in which we were raised up through him through faith, listen, faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. There it is. God's work ultimately described in the gospel. That's what we believe in. That's what faith is. What good news that I don't have to do better or try harder or to attain a certain standard for God to say, boy, now you made it. But there's more. <laughs> we'll see this next week. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one way may boast. We're gonna look more closely at the ineptness of our efforts and our works. And we're gonna talk deeply about how putting faith in your own self will rob you of salvation's assurance. 
Where is your hope? Where is your hope? I can't resist. I can't resist. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, including our own righteousness, is what? Quicksand, sinking sand. Boy, I hope that your hope is in Christ. We have just started scratching the surface of this great doctrine, and we'll get to two more facets next week. I'm so thankful to God for his salvation, and I trust you are as well.